0: My name is Wizzy Brown,
1: and I'm Bryant McDowell,
0: and I'm Molly Keck, and we're with the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service Department of Entomology, and this is Bugs by the Yard, where we hope to increase your enthusiasm about bugs in the urban landscape.
1: Welcome back to Bugs by the Yard. On this episode, we are going to talk about the Mason Bees. It's a group of early arrival bees native to the U.S. I know people get really excited whenever we talk about bees, and I've had individuals reach out. I I see Wizzy getting all (laughs) excited right now on my screen. I
0: get excited about the native bees. Molly gets excited
2: about the (laughs) honeybees. I like the native bees, too.
1: I get excited. All the bees.
2: I'm a... I did it again. I forgot the word you're supposed to say. I'm a equal opportunity bee person. person. There you go. Thank you. (laughs)
1: That's like something you should put on your business cards.
2: Uh Equal opportunity for all (laughs) (laughs) birds.
1: I get a lot of questions about bee diversity and saving the bees and... Should we be concerned? I find in most cases, people are referring to honeybees or they think that honeybees are in decline. And so.
0: Or that they're endangered.
1: Exactly. And to to that, I'm always like, oh, we get something out of honeybees. We manage the crap out of them. So I tell people because there's that incentive, they're stressed, right? We're moving them up and down the coast to do our pollinating and whatnot. And and I'm talking about like commercial beekeepers right now, but we're not referring to honeybees so much whenever we're saying, oh, we're noticing bee decline. But this group that we'll talk about today, the mason bees, the native bees are the ones that are probably more the, the focus of that decline. A lot of bees have these special relationships with native plants. In addition to just the mason bees life cycle, compared to honeybees. Mason bees are solitary bees, so they're not in a huge hive. This is one female who is providing for her offspring, laying her eggs. Do y'all know how many generations per year? They overwinter as adults in their cells, right? That the mom has kind of provided. it's
0: one generation per year.
1: Okay. So, wow.
0: Just the mason bees? They do their (laughs) stuff in the spring and then they hang out until next spring.
1: Right. And so we'll talk about Well, we'll talk about why that's important in a bit too.
2: Is that, I'm sorry, did you ask for specifically mason bees or all of them?
1: Mason bees, yes. Okay, I I was reading a little bit about when they're active because they are early, early arrivals, so before the honeybees or anything like that are out pollinating people will use mason bees to pollinate their earlier fruiting trees so any of the examples i'm looking at right now are apples plums peaches and pears but i want to say i saw something on another site
2: blackberries raspberries blueberries i think too yeah yeah there's some i don't know what the crops are specifically but there's some crops that there are they are better at pollinating than honeybees are yeah ooh I'll so, Mason bees, I don't know it right now. Are,
1: um they I don't know how many genera we have. Osmia is what I've come across is that the the typical species down here in in Texas. I know that that there's two subspecies. There's like a western and an eastern. We have the eastern species.
0: The Osmia, the the genus, that's just like Mason bees because mason bees they are in the family megachylidae, which includes
1: a whole All bunch of, of the... other stuff
0: as well. Right.
1: Yeah. The megachylid, megachylid, however you want to pronounce it, are the leaf cutting bees. There's a couple of other groups. I think that's like a big umbrella term in this group. So these are kind of smaller bees, very fuzzy. There's diverse coloration through them. The mason bees that we're talking about are kind of a darker black, blue, gray. I don't know how many exact species I've seen upwards of like three species mentioned in everything that i've looked at i'm sure there are more what are y'all's experience is it just in that osmia genus
0: if we're looking at the osmia genus there's like a well in north america there's over 130 species yeah
1: quite a few so mason bees why are they called mason bees these utilize clay and and mud to divide out their cells whenever they are nesting Is, is that the word i'm kind of having a blank
0: Everybody refers to it as a nest, which I'm wanting to change that because it's not a nest. When you think of a nest, that's where the bee actually is living. This is a nursery area. So that is essentially where they are providing food for their offspring. They lay an egg on it, and that's where the offspring develop. So it's it's not that the bee is living in that location. That is where the bees are developing.
1: Well, you heard it here first, pioneered by Wizzy Brown. Extension
0: Call it program. a nursery. It's a bee <laughs> nursery.
1: A bee <laughs> nursery. And so these nurseries are going to be in kind of naturally occurring holes and crannies, different reeds, think like hollowed out areas.
0: I listed some of the like weird things because some of them were so to- totally adorable. So like hollow plant stems, which is kind of a, the old beetle burrows. So you have like the beetles that will burrow in the ground or they'll use old bee burrows that are like other solitary bees that nest in the ground. Some of them will use plant galls. So everybody's all up in arms about the galls that are on their trees and these bees might use those. And then there are some that will also do it in old snail shells, like abandoned snail shells. How cute would that be?
1: I did see that, the difference in the straight, elongated tubes versus the coiled. How interesting. Usually black, metallic, can be blue, kind of green colored. They are fuzzy. So mason bees don't utilize... If you've ever seen honeybees around plants, you'll see they have these kind of Thunder thighs that look orange or or yellow, right? They've got these pollen baskets on their legs that they're stuffing pollen into in order to take back to their nest. Mason bees will carry their pollen on their bellies on the underside, but they're very fuzzy, and they do a really good job at kind of breaking up that pollen, getting it stuck to their bodies, traveling to a bunch of plants.
0: I have this vision in my brain. I think of this bee with the pollen all over her belly. And then her just like going and kind of doing a giant belly flop into the next flower. And so that will like spread the pollen in there. And then she gets more pollen. And so it's like mixing everything up. And then she goes to the next flower and like belly flops in there. <laughs> and so she's just kind of doing her little thing. And I just, the idea of bees doing belly flops into flowers just makes me smile.
1: They like a lot of the tube, natural tube-shaped things. And so I I guess like the tube-shaped flowers, does that extend to the flowers as well? The type of flower that they prefer are those kind of deeper flowers? Is that something that is actual factual or did I just read something and run?
0: I also read that, but it also, it depends on the species. If you're talking about the blue orchard bees, they prefer flowers. They're more of a specialist. So... Osmia has generalists and specialists, and the blue orchard bee, which is a particular type of mason bee, those ones prefer things in the rose family. So that would be obviously roses, but it also includes a lot of the fruit trees.
1: Ooh. So mama mason bee is out collecting all of the pollen. When they find a suitable nursery site, they'll mix basically pollen and nectar as a food form they're going to place provisions for their offspring along with an egg and they kind of seal up that chamber if you will if you can imagine like a really deep cave and you go all the way back to the cave you're gonna you know put some provision lay your egg seal that up with that clay mud mixture and repeat i keep seeing four to six i'm trying to see how many eggs per chamber i guess it really just depends right on the depth of the chamber and whatnot.
0: I thought it was one per chamber or do they oh, lay yes. more one, than one.
1: one per chamber, but multiple chambers that per
0: multiple tube? per chambers per tube. And that usually depends on the depth The depth of the And tube. I've seen
1: upwards of, yeah, like six or so. I, I see that uh, a female will lay up to 36 eggs. I've seen that reported.
0: And they will use more than one tube. Like if they fill up a tube, then they'll go Move find on. another tube. Right
1: yes those larvae are going to hatch eat up that food provision that mom had left them they'll continue molting in their individual cell they'll pupate and once they emerge out of their pupil casing as adults they're going to overwinter in those cells and then emerge the following spring i was kind of confused in my mind i'm like okay she's laying this egg with provisions in the back of the chamber Isn't that one going to hatch first and how's it going to get out? And I was so confused. So I have a question for you all because I saw that the males are going to hatch earlier in the spring and the males are going to be in those cells that are further out. So the the last laid ones, which
0: are to the entrance.
1: Yeah, which we're talking about last laid. It really doesn't matter because they've all kind of pupated and they're all staying in their little cells as adults anyways. But once they come out, are the males the first one's out because the female runs out of sperm to fertilize the egg, or... No. Is, is it a total choice?
0: The choice. It's a choice. choice. So it's... The, the male eggs essentially are going to be less expensive because they're not fertilized. So they... Like if something... A bird or a lizard or something came and ate those eggs that's not as much of a problem i guess i I, i'm not wording that right but that it's she's not fertilizing those eggs so therefore it's less genetically expensive to Mm -hmm. the bees so there's the advantage of that that they can be sacrificed and no big deal because they can still carry on the next generation But it also allows those males to be first out. That way they are there when the other bees come out for mating purposes. And then, of course, once they mate, then the males die. They have served their purpose. Right,
1: right. right. You mentioned the generalists and specialists. I kind of want to touch back on why diversity in, in the landscape as far as food sources go it's my understanding that mason bees do not forage very long distances. Is that
0: That is true. Usually it's within 300 feet or so.
1: Correct. That's what I've heard. So when you get in these like larger urban areas that have no sort of provisions and you see this decrease in bee populations, I guess I'm just referring back to everyone's like, Oh, the bees are in decline, you know, having a a variety of of plants, early blooming plants for food sources for these early risers is important. But also I've had people inquire about, well, I want to get mason bees, or I want mason bees in my yard. And that's great. I'm all for that you can create your own nesting materials for them to provide for them. If it doesn't work out one year, no big deal. You can keep that stuff out and eventually maybe have a population. But if you don't have any mason bees in the area and you're expecting them to utilize what you're providing, things take time, I guess I should say, multiple seasons. And
0: they're also going to need to make sure that they are adapting their landscape to be habitable for those bees. So you can't just put out a bee house Which, I mean, technically, you don't even have to do that if you want them in the area. I mean, you can if you want to watch the process. But it would be more important to have native plants that are going to bloom and attract these native pollinators. And it is better a lot of times to have native plants because if you think about it, they are co-evolving together. And so, planting native plants is going to be better for our native insects. And then also, maybe consider thinking about putting some area that they're going to be able to collect mud. So, obviously, from the plants, they're going to be getting the pollen and the nectar that they need to make their little food for their offspring. But the mud they're going to need to have for creating those walls that they're making to divide the nursery area up so having either an area in the yard or if you don't have someplace specific maybe creating like a shallow dish or something where you have a clay-based mud substance that can be used for them almost like a mortar yeah that they can use to build those walls
1: and for those of you who are wondering like what are they talking about bee houses i'm sure you've I'm sure that you have seen them because I feel like they're getting so popular. You can even find them at like Walmart now, or I, I saw Costco has them, but a lot of the typical ones look like if you just imagine like a wooden box house and it's kind of filled up with these half slices of usually it's like bamboo, I feel, or just like hollow circle chunks. And you can make this really easily in your landscape not even with bamboo but like your native plants and straws just areas where they can kind of get down into those nooks and crannies what other materials have y'all used maybe in your bee hotels
2: we'll do like a fun activity for kids is we'll do like recycled paper i think it just needs to be kind of rough and it can't be like pvc pipe or super smooth we've done recycled paper or Uh, newspaper, and we'll take different markers and pencils and pens, so different width of things, dowel rods, wrap it around that, tape it, pull it off, and then cut it and place it inside of a soup can. And if you get like the deeper ones, then you'll get the females laid inside Mm -hmm. there. It's like y'all were saying earlier, if they don't like it, they don't like it. They're going to find somewhere else to go. So don't get your feelings hurt. If you put things out and they don't utilize it, they're probably still in the landscape somewhere or somewhere close by. They just, they're finding another natural place to go to. But um, I think anything that's rough, they'll utilize. I've used cardboard tubes
0: before that you can get different diameters of cardboard tubes. I tend to steer clear of bamboo because usually that has that kind of constriction somewhere in there. And so it's not as deep as you think it is. Yeah. And if you want the females, you usually need to have a deeper or more of a depth to it. I want to say like seven, eight
2: inches deep or so. I think minimum of six. Cause I think if it's any shorter than four inches that they'll lay boys in it and they'll yeah. do like really shallow. I one time and I don't know if this was Mason Bees, but it was some native bee. I'm assuming it was a mason bee. I took my hedger out, like a, a you know, a piece of equipment and where the screws went in, so it was like an inch maybe. It was clogged up with mud and I thought the kids had put caulk in it. And I'm like, why would they do this to my stuff? And then I got looking at it closer. I was like, those little suckers. It was a, it was a bee that did it. So that was actually pretty smooth. I mean, it was plastic. So I don't think it matters what you do. Just provide them with a a cylinder type void and they'll take advantage of it. (laughs)
0: If you are buying a structure or creating a structure of some sort, you do want to make sure that it's stable and not blowing around in the wind. So that makes it easier for the bees to get in there and find that specific tube that they're in. But you also want it getting morning sun and make sure that it's protected from wind and rain. Then the other thing I would suggest is that you clean it out. On occasion because it can build fungus and that sort of stuff. If you're using uh, paper tubes like Molly was talking about or cardboard tubes or something like that, a lot of times you could just remove those once the bees have emerged and then you can pop new ones in.
2: And we're talking mason bees, which are you know, one generation a year, but there's other native bees that have multiple generations a year. So that's always the question I get. And, and a little concerning for me too, like, when do I remove those old tubes? How do I know they've made their way out? So I'll take pictures of it at certain times, like before it gets cold, even when it's cold. And then kind of that way I can go back and I know when it was all capped up. And so I can catch, oh, wait, I think someone came in and laid an egg in the meantime and I and sealed it up and this is new. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's a little work, but I'm trying to help them out. I don't want to throw them all away.
1: So since they are one generation a year and they're going to be laying in these hollow voids, these naturally occurring areas, grasses and stems and whatnot, when it comes to your landscape and winter maintenance as well, these are one of those species that will probably be affected if you're chopping down all of your property early on too early. You're not mm-hmm. giving it enough time for them to hatch out for the next season.
0: Leave those hollow stemmed plants.
1: I've also seen where people have put the straw materials and then, and it might not be for mason bees. It might just be for other native bees, but they kind of put a like a chicken wire yeah. and just kind of stuff mm-hmm. it as as much as possible.
2: I don't even know if it's for bees. I think it's just when they make like a, a an insect hotel. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I would say if you go on
1: Pinterest or something, you'll see so many images of, some of them are small, you know, people will put up on their posts on their porch or something. Others I've seen look like an owl hotel. They're Mm -hmm. giant. And I don't even know how many, I don't know if there's a lot of utilization there. Something's going to use it. I'm sure. I don't know if it's catered just to mason bees, but if not them, I'm sure the birds too are picking at some of that stuff straw materials or like cottony materials that people will put in them
0: question that i always get on mason bees we do not have to harvest our mason bees in texas technically you don't have to buy mason bees if you put the stuff out and you make the habitat good for them they are going to eventually come and inhabit the area because it's going to be a good place for them but when you look at a lot of these places from northern climates, they actually do this whole process where they harvest the mason bees and they overwinter them in like refrigerators and things like that, and then they'll do this whole processing thing. We don't have to do that. You just mm-hmm. stick out the habitat and you let them do their thing.
1: I was looking at that too, places that they don't overwinter. So I guess people in Florida who want mason bees and whatnot, that they have to go through that cold spell. It's like required for their life cycle. And so if you don't get to those temperatures, I guess that's whenever you have to intervene. But naturally we don't have to. Is that the case? I don't know. I was looking at maybe these are more.
0: Well, if you're in like Minnesota or something, I mean, they're going to have mason bees up there, but it gets like super cold. And if you have this little tiny house and s- instead of like a natural area, it's going to be a little bit different. So just for us, just stick out the house and you'll be fine. The mason bees are going to, they they have a, a pheromone. Osmia actually means odor uh. and it refers to the pheromone that they use to mark their little nursery area. And so these are going to be not only species specific, but also individually specific. So uh, there was a researcher that did a test where she put tubes out and she had the mason bees come and they started in their tubes. And then when they went away, she switched the tube locations. And when they came back, they went to the right tube, even though it was in a different location. So they know which one is theirs based on that smell.
1: That's pretty neat. Do we want to mention anything about parasites? I guess just to be aware that mason bees can host different parasites, whether they're mites or even other bees in that same family. There's within that family, you know, you've got the the megachylids are the leaf cutting bees. You've got the mason bees. There's cuckoo bees. They're called cuckoo bees because they actually parasitize other bee eggs.
2: Like cuckoo
0: birds.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like the cuckoo birds and same concept. Essentially, they will go and lay their egg. Either the female will take out the egg slash larva of the mason bee or the parasitic (laughs) larva will hatch, kill the mason bee larvae and utilize that food provision and hiding place, I guess, to develop. What else? Parasitic wasps, different calcid wasps can can parasitize them.
0: The way that I look at this, and I'm sure, you know, the way I look at the world is probably different than everybody else on the planet because I know I'm weird, but the way I look at it is you don't need to overly manage stuff it's like I put out my house and I clean things out on occasion if I see like fungal buildup or you know I posted a video I don't know last year or the year before where acrobat ants invaded and at that point I had to do like a massive (laughs) kind of cleaning of my bee house but I think a lot of times if you start worrying about parasites on the bees and trying to overmanage things. You're just being a little intense. This is nature being nature and just kind of let it do its thing and there's got to be some level of stepping back and kind of letting things progress.
1: You're doing your best in in providing a harborage area for them.
0: Right. Yeah. Don't worry so much about if something is parasitizing it because there's really nothing you could do about it, right? Right. You shoo you, them away. Uh, stand out there and guard it.
1: <laughs> get out there with your magnifying glass and fine tip forceps. And oh.
2: <laughs> I found that statistic about the bees, the mason bees being better than honeybees. And it actually is the species that is the orchard mason bee or the blue orchard mason bee. I see it both different ways. I'm assuming it's the same species. So I think it is. So this is for pollinating apples, almonds, which you always hear about honeybees doing, plums and cherries, that blue orchard mason bee is more efficient at it than honeybees. And that it would take over 90,000 honeybees to do the same job 300 blue orchard mason bees could do, which, you know, when your kids go through like simplifying things, why wouldn't we say it would take 900 honeybees (laughs) for three? (laughs) That sounds big.
0: It doesn't sound as dramatic (laughs) or they didn't learn fractions. And yeah, what is it? What do you call that? That's another word. I can't remember. What
2: do you call it when you.
0: Least common denominator, right? Something. Yeah, something. They're dividing
2: that out. Silly.
1: Yeah. It doesn't sound as good saying three to one
2: or (laughs) three to 900. Or you could even go like
0: one, one to 300, right? 3, or the nine hundred, yeah. I'd yeah. like that. Yeah,
1: 300. visually, I I think that's easier for me to understand. Anyway,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, but it doesn't sound nearly as dramatic. That's
2: funny.
1: They also shows that in Virginia, North Carolina, that they had a preference for the native redbud over the orchard fruits, but which makes sense. Mm-hmm. A redbud is one of those early trees, I think, to flush out and bloom.
0: You said at the beginning, this is. Kind of the first bee on the scene, right?
1: Yeah, well, that's what I understand as they're, because they're such an early arriver. Yeah, um, at least the the males and then the females a couple like two weeks after I think it is because the males don't live very long.
0: No, well, one, they mate and die. And the yeah. other thing about this one, the other another reason that they are better than honeybees, they will be out and about when honeybees are too persnickety to emerge from the hive. So if we have cooler, wetter, or cloudy days or something, then these will still be out and active, but the honeybees will stay in their cozy little right. homes.
2: They also visit more plow- flowers per minute than a honeybee does, and they transfer pollen more effect- efficiently between flowers than honeybees do.
0: Which that totally makes sense to me, because if you think about you know, the giant abdomen versus, I mean, with honeybees, they like really cram that pollen down on the legs and it is like tight yes. stuck in there versus just kind of there on the, the belly, right? right?
1: Yeah. So it looks like they're active. I found when the average daily temperature is 57 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's, that's pretty low, I think, compared to other insects
2: yeah definitely
1: we don't even plant garden plants until isn't it like 65 at like soil temperatures at least i i think that's like the soil
0: temperature is different than ambient temperature
1: very true very true either way though by basically all of the reproduction happens throughout spring and by june by early summer it's just the larvae feeding on the provisions from mom pupating and then the mother dies off by the end of summer not aggressive bees. I guess I could have mentioned that as well. So they tend to be a pretty shy bee. I also saw that their sting has been described as like very moderate, which I don't know who's saying that. I compare everything to a fire ant. So I'm like, okay, if it's comparable to a fire ant, from what it sounds like, it's, it's less intense than a fire ant sting. So I'm like, okay, I could, I could take that. I've also never been stung by a honeybee though. So I have no way to, I know I see Molly's face. I haven't.
2: (laughs) I can arrange that. I'm down. Mm-hmm.
1: You talked about purchasing, Wizzy. Do you know any reliable places to to purchase Mason bees?
0: I have never purchased them, so I cannot really give firsthand experience on that. I know there are plenty of <clears throat> there are places that you can buy them online, but I've never really had the desire
2: to do so. I haven't either, but I I get that question all the time, and then yeah. I just go to Google and say like whatever. Yeah, just Google
1: this is what I found.
0: Mace, mason bees and I'm sure places will pop up. But again, I think you get them in the two. If you build it, they will come. Yeah. <laughs> so just yeah. give them the
2: space, make sure they have mud, make sure they have plants, and you're good. That
1: concludes our episode on mason bees. Stay tuned. Next episode, we are going to discuss, I'm very excited, the periodical cicadas. We're going to talk about those. And then at the end of March, we'll have an episode on the best beetles or pasalids, my favorite barking beetles. Have you guys ever heard those chirps? Yeah,
2: well, they squeak like a mouse. I'm going to try
1: to get... Yes, they do. They're they're so cute. Oh, yes. We use these in our summer camps, actually. Yeah. I'll try and get some audio. Maybe I can play it in that episode as well. So stay tuned and we will catch you next time. Howdy to our listeners and fellow bug nerds. We want to take the time to tell you to check out our show notes on each episode and for more information and supplemental materials on the topics covered. Additionally, if you have any questions or recommendations for what you may want to learn more about, you can send us an email to www.bugsbytheyard at gmail.com. If you enjoy this content and would like to learn more about structural pests that may invade your home, check out our other podcasts, Unwanted Guests, brought to you by Texas A&M University AgriLife Extension and the Department of Entomology. As always, please subscribe or follow the podcast feed to make sure you never miss an
2: episode.